Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shiv Glani, and today on Raise the Line, I'm really honored to be joined by Chelsea Clinton, who's vice chair of the Clinton Foundation. In that role, Dr. Clinton works alongside the foundation's leadership and partners to help create economic opportunity, improve public health, and inspire civic engagement and service across the U.S. and around the world. In particular, she focuses on promoting early brain and language development through the Too Small to Fail initiative and uplifting and empowering female entrepreneurs and women-led businesses around the world. She also teaches at Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health and has written several books for young readers, including the number one New York Times bestselling, She Persisted, 13 American Women Who Changed the World. I'm really looking forward to learning more about her work at the foundation and getting her views on the state of public health in the U.S. and abroad during the COVID pandemic. And before we get started, I'd like to really thank uh, our advisor and investor, Alan Patrikoff, who initially made the introduction, as well as make the connection that another raised line guest, Marcus Osborne, used to work with her at the Clinton Foundation. So Chelsea, it's truly an honor. Thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. Shiv, thanks so much for having me on today. So we're recording this the day after the inauguration. It's January 21st today. Would just love to hear what you felt about yesterday. How, how did that uh, come across for you? I was incredibly proud and grateful and hopeful. Uh, it also was so meaningful to me in a way that I hadn't really anticipated, but I, I probably should have had I thought about it, uh, to be able to share the whole experience with my children, uh, to not have to worry about white supremacy being kind of central or celebrated or lies kind of being a main currency of communication. Uh, and so just that I didn't have to worry about that as a parent and that I could see how excited my uh, kids were admittedly to see their grandma and pop off like on screen. Um, but, you know, to see um, President Biden now uh, be inaugurated and Vice President Kamala Harris be inaugurated, to see Kamala Harris be inaugurated or kind of administer the oath of office by Justice Sonia Sotomayor, who admittedly my kids know about because of the She Persisted book that you mentioned earlier just to watch their awe and their pride. And kind of the only real question was where is uh, Major Biden? Because both Charlotte and Aiden, my two older kids have learned about the uh, Biden's pets kind of in school. And Aiden, my four-year-old just kept asking like, where's Major? And I was like, you know, unfortunately like dogs don't participate in this part of the inaugural celebrations or kind of in the formal inauguration. Um, but after all of the many conversations we've had over the past four years about how we don't support what the president is doing, we don't support bullies, we don't support people who are demeaning to others who don't believe that we have and deserve equal dignity. It was a profoundly moving experience for me as an American. It was a especially profoundly moving experience for me as a parent. That's wonderful. And, you know, I'm reminded of that Isaac Newton quote, if I've seen further, it's because I've stood on the shoulders of giants. And uh, I was thinking a lot about that, knowing that this interview was coming up, that uh, the historic vice president, Kamala Harris, obviously has seen further and is a giant in her own regard. And largely, I mean, your mother paved the way for a lot of that. So um, I'm sure there's a lot of well-deserved pride for that. Huge pride in Kamala Harris and also in our country and what this means for our march toward a more perfect union. And also, you know, Shiv, I don't know for you and your family, but certainly for me, 
like I was thinking this morning, like, I don't know which genre of photograph I now am, am finding most uh, important and meaningful to me. Is it the pictures like of my friends sending selfies of themselves getting vaccinated, like my friends who are, you know, frontline healthcare workers, or my friends who are now sending me pictures because they know it's going to mean so much to me if their parents or their grandparents getting vaccinated. Or my friends, so many of whom sent me pictures of admittedly their daughters, although I like to think, um, they were also equally excited for their sons, their daughters, like watching Kamala be inaugurated and just, you know, representation is not everything. It certainly is, should not be the end goal, but it matters. It really, really matters. And um, I felt like I was really lucky to see that not only in my own kids' reactions yesterday, but also in all the pictures that I got from my friends of their daughters, just looking up and and I could see through those still images that they could see themselves in a really powerful way that uh, hadn't been possible before yesterday. That's wonderful. That's really exciting. So right after the inauguration, a lot of executive orders were signed, obviously, including rejoining the WHO, which we're all very excited about. And um, this morning when Dr. Fauci, you know, got up at like four o'clock in the morning to be able to zoom in, or I don't know, maybe it was Google me, like whatever the platform was where he joined like the WHO executive board meeting in Geneva. And I'm just so thrilled that one of the first things President Biden did was to reverse that absurd, obscene letter, uh, putting forth the year's notice to withdraw the United States from WHO. So I'm thrilled that we didn't have to reverse the withdrawal. We just had to reverse the intention to withdraw. And also that we committed today to to pay our dues to WHO to help support and sustain the institution. And also that we committed today to join COVAX, uh, which is the effort to help purchase and distribute vaccines uh, in the developing world, in the global South, something that the Trump administration had, had resisted doing. So, so much good news this morning, um, long overdue news, but also really uh, still very, very good news. Totally. And we launched this podcast in the heart of the epidemic. And, you know, most of our guests, we asked them how we can do better, how we can raise line and improve healthcare capacity. And now, since this is the day after the inauguration, a lot of these things are already starting to happen. I would love to hear what, what you're most excited about as far as the public health efforts that are starting to go. And you mentioned COVAX, we joined WHO, but, you know, wearing your public health hat and your Clinton Foundation hat, what are you most excited about and how are you all uh, contributing? Because I know you do a lot around global health. So, you know, Cheval, I'll, I'll talk about both what I'm uh, excited about and what I'm really grateful to see thus far and what I still think we need, candidly. So, you know, one of the other things that happened um, both last night and this morning was President Biden signaling and then signing executive orders to invoke the Defense Production Act, which you know, there had been enormous pressure for the Trump administration to do and it had always resisted doing for reasons that were never made clear. Uh, so what the DPA will allow is for the, the government to effectively work with private companies to expand their, their manufacturing capacity. Uh, and that the Trump uh, administration resisted doing this writ large and in specific. And very quickly, the Biden administration is kind of showing its juxtaposition because it is doing both. It is both calling for ways where the DPA um, could and should be invoked and soliciting suggestions to do that while also uh, invoking it in very specific ways. So we've already invoked it for swab production um, so that we can ramp up our testing capacity because still a year into COVID, we're still not testing enough people every day. And not only swabs, but the other components that we need for the PCR test is one of the other things that has happened recently, Shiv, which I'm sure you probably talked about on your podcast before, is that 
Um, we've moved away from the gold standard of PCR test. Increasingly, the tests that we're forming are, are not at the PCR level and are not the PCR itself. And now uh, there's growing pressure for the Biden administration to do the same around vaccines. And you know, I think that would be really important, not only to help ensure that we're uh, doing more than just vaccinating a million people a day, which is the initial goal that the Biden administration has set uh, here in the United States, but also to help us meet our commitment to COVAX. I mean, yes, like building biologic production capacity is expensive, but it's certainly a lot less expensive to invest in doing that than in continuing to hemorrhage lives and economic productivity with what we're seeing today uh, in our ongoing COVID-19 crisis. So I hope that what the Biden administration has started to do through the Defense Production Act is only a small part of what it will do, because I think we really desperately need to be scaling up our vaccine distribution capacity so that we are able to vaccinate more people here in the United States and support the vaccinating of people around the world. We're very excited about that. We we had a recent guest, Omar Ishraq, who's the longtime CEO and now executive chairman at Medtronic, and we talked a lot about you know, the work that they were doing for ventilator capacity and how the Defense Production Act helped streamline some of that. It was one of the only times that it was invoked, right? It was when the Trump administration invoked it for ventilators in the spring. There were some other kind of more technical things that they did, but really like that was the major example of the DPA and we saw how much uh, it mattered. So it will forever remain a mystery probably as to why they didn't use the, um, not only the the moral, uh, but also the logistics and the purchasing power of the US government to help better equip us and make our public health response more robust. Uh, They didn't, but thankfully um, I'm confident the Biden administration will do so and that what we're seeing last night and today is only the first step. So in addition to the things that obviously the administration is already doing, I mean, obviously major nonprofits like the Clinton Foundation, uh, academic health centers like the Mailman School of Public Health, where you teach at, are obviously doing a lot around uh, education, around uh, distribution and equity. What are some of the things that you're most excited about, about the work that you all are doing that raise line and improve healthcare capacity? So, Shiv, I think I'll separate out what I think Mailman and, and Columbia are doing well and kind of what we're doing at the foundation and hope we will be able to do more of. So I do think one of the really um, good parts of Columbia's response is that it very much has drawn on every part of, of the institution. So whether that's working with public health experts at mailmen or recruiting mailmen faculty to help support uh, the vaccination efforts happening through Columbia Presbyterian. So helping support data entry or helping support patients as they navigate booking their appointments, reminding them to show up for their appointments, booking their second dose appointments, really trying to help ensure that um, those who can uh, administer the shots are administering the shots and that others are doing the other work. And I point that out because I think, Shiv, that's actually been a, a challenge in some other institutions where the front line of the front line has been expected to do anything and everything around vaccinations. Uh, and that's not a good use or kind of an optimal use of their time. So I'm really proud to be part of an institution that I think has has done a good job there. On the broader Clinton Foundation front, um, certainly through the Clinton Health Access Initiative, we've been working with uh, WHO over the last year to just try to help support uh, their efforts on everything from trying to forecast the trajectory and velocity of the epidemic to then forecast what 
uh, health commodities would be needed on everything from uh, testing to vaccines and vaccinations to human resources that would be needed for everything from testing to contact tracing to isolating suspected and, and positive COVID cases, isolating those people and patients with dignity to support treatment once we have had real robust data around what really can work to improve someone's chance of survival. So we've done all sorts of work to support WHO there, and then also with the partner governments and countries where we work to support their more, more national and, and local efforts, and while also still trying to support the programs that you know, hopefully, hopefully haven't been disruptive, although some have, whether that is HIV AIDS, like testing and treatment, or routine childhood immunizations. Um, and we know that, you know, in some countries where all routine childhood immunizations were stopped, trying to keep a good log of um, which children haven't been vaccinated against which diseases so that in a more safe time, uh, we'll be able to catch up those kids as, as quickly as possible. Because I think it would just be a, a tragedy on top of a tragedy if we lose progress against deaths attributed to diarrhea or deaths attributed to pneumonia and you know things that we really, really, really do know how to prevent with good childhood inoculation coverage. And then here in the United States, we've done everything from turn the Clinton Presidential Center into the largest feeding site in the state of Arkansas to support people who very much have been economically struggling over the last year because of our government's mismanagement of, of the virus. It is not the lockdown's fault. It is the fact that we ever needed a lockdown because the Trump administration failed so abysmally to stop the trajectory or then failed to really successfully kind of flatten and then stamp out the, the COVID curve to helping support families whose kids are you know, now at home through more early reading and early brain development and engagement uh, materials and a deep passion of mind shift, which is where we're now focusing more and more energy is trying to combat vaccine misinformation and really build public trust, but also ensure that trust is connected to real public knowledge and understanding of what of what vaccines are and what they aren't. And I'm happy to talk more about that. I'm going to pause, but hopefully that gives you a small sense of kind of work we're doing around the world and closer to home. That's wonderful. Um, I think a lot of really good threads to pull on there, uh, but I want to be mindful of your time. So, you know, as far as vaccine education, I'd I love to go deeper in that. I mean, one of the things we're most proud of at Osmosis is we we work now with YouTube, which just this month announced launching YouTube Health, led by a physician, Dr. Garth Graham, and they've actually funded us to create a lot of vaccine education content. On Raise Line, we've also had the CDC, who we partner with now on vaccine education too, and the head of Facebook Health and Amazon Alexa Health, um, because those tech companies obviously have massive distribution, which they can use for good or for bad, as we've seen recently. So I know you all have been helping with vaccination efforts globally and vaccine education well before anyone, most of society knew what a coronavirus was, but I uh, would love to hear your thoughts on on how we can be more effective at vaccine education. That'd be great. Why don't I start with kind of explaining how I first even came to understand what a challenge we confront here in the United States and, and also increasingly around the world around uh, misinformation and, and misconceptions about uh, vaccines. So I'll tell you just two quick stories. I was pregnant uh, with my first child, Charlotte, and I was coming home from work, walking from the subway station across the park to our apartment building. And uh, this woman came up to me and uh, said, you know, are you Chelsea Clinton? I said, yes. And she grabbed my hand, Shiv, and she looked 
deep into my eyes and she said, please don't vaccinate your child. You know, I was so taken aback. Um, I said, thank you for your concern. I, I will be vaccinating my child. And she said, then you will kill them. I mean, it was such a dramatic and unnuanced <laughs> response. And I said, I think thankfully, like that is not true. In fact, like I think the vaccines are going to, are going to protect them, maybe you know, save their life. So she just looked so disappointed and she walked away. And then I had a, a couple of other people say nothing quite that dramatic, but also really kind of position the question of um, whether or not I would vaccinate my child as if it should be a question, as if there were you know, equally valid views on multiple sides of a debate for a question that I didn't actually think was a question and I certainly didn't think was a debate. Then when I, after I had Charlotte, she was maybe a, a year old and I was being interviewed and I had started to speak out about my concerns um, as a parent, as a public health person, as a citizen, that we were facing a, a growing wave aided and embedded by social media of vaccine misinformation and then uh, correlating vaccine mistrust and then of parents opting out of, of vaccinating their kids. And this woman interviewing me said, well, would you let Charlotte play with an unvaccinated child? And I said, no. And she said, isn't that judgmental? And I said, yes, it is. I am her parent. Like she is a year old. Like, it is my main job in life to make judgments on her behalf to help protect her health and safety. And the person interviewing me was like so taken aback, you know, and, and I should have also said them like, and I wouldn't have let her play in a house with an unlocked gun, right? Like, no, like I'm not going to willfully expose my kids, you know, to, to danger. And so, you know, that then kind of further um, just got me interested. And it got me interested not only as a citizen and as a parent, as an activist, but also as an academic. And I got more involved in the literature and in the research and also in the various efforts, some of which are quite longstanding here in the United States, to uh, really educate parents, especially on vaccines and vaccination. So, you know, fast forward to the last year, um, and I think we had really started to make progress, actually, to kind of beat back the really very worrying uh, trends that we had seen, especially on parents opting out of the MMR. And we were starting to see you know, vaccination levels tick up again. WHO had warned that you know, the U.S. could lose our measles-free status because we were having so many measles outbreaks directly related to parents not vaccinating their kids against measles. And, and we were starting to see real progress again. Vaccination rates were starting to go up. States were tightening the rules for what really qualified as an exception for uh, parents to not vaccinate their children and still be able to send their kids to school. Um, states and cities also started to include private and parochial schools in those regulations. So it became harder for parents who didn't want to vaccinate their kids to you know, route their kids out of the public system and put them in schools where maybe vaccines weren't required. And then COVID happened. And tragically, the main purveyors of vaccine misinformation and and really distrust, recognized a, a pretty great market opportunity for them. And they have massively expanded their, their market share. And so there are now groups that had you know, hundreds of thousands of people that now have millions of people. And so thankfully, you, know, you mentioned YouTube earlier, YouTube had already um, prevented the monetization of anti-vaccine content. So they stopped you know, Del Bigtree and Robert Kennedy Jr. and some of the I think great villains in this story from being able to make money off of their 
anti-science content. And Facebook kind of took down uh, a lot of the kind of most egregious information about COVID specifically, but they still have allowed a lot of equally egregious, equally unscientific misinformation to still uh, not only exist, but really thrive on their platform. So if you're asking like what you can do, I think, you know, we have to, we have to continue to pressure, not just the social media companies, but especially Facebook and especially YouTube. We just saw pretty powerfully that deplatforming works, right? When Facebook removed Trump, hate speech dropped dramatically. So we know deplatforming works and we really need their partnership right now to deplatform the big single and the big kind of groups of anti-vaccine content. And we also need to continue to support, you know, doctors and nurses on the front lines who are having conversations with parents or children or, or with anyone for ourselves about questions we might have and, and to equip them with every resource that they need to be able to answer questions of, you know, is the COVID vaccine actually just a cover for Bill Gates to chip us and track us, which, you know, depending on the survey, like, more than 10% of Americans at least think it's a possibility, right? To how, how you actually address something that you and I know is, is lunacy, but is a very real concern tragically that, that people have at the moment. Two, I think much more understandable concerns that people have that this vaccine was maybe rushed because of how quickly um, we were able to get to at least two now fully qualified vaccines that are being administered here in the United States and more elsewhere. So how do you talk about that? To How do you reassure people that while Trump tried to politicize and manipulate the process, um, all evidence says that the FDA was not politicized, was not manipulated in its approval process. You know, to very real concerns that people have that this may be like an extended phase three and they're still being experimented on and you know, especially for Black Americans and other Americans of color who have often found their bodies to be sources of medical experimentation in our country have very, very, very valid questions there. So I think, Shiv, there's so much that we need to do to, in your language, really raise the line. And some of it is helping support individuals, having individual conversations. And some of it is, is putting pressure on, on the platforms and also on Amazon. Like, why is Amazon still selling books that are full of endless lies. Why can you still watch Andrew Wakefield, who I think is like one of the great mass murderers of like the last two decades? Like, why can you still stream his documentary on, on Amazon? You should not be able to do that because it's not a documentary. So there's a lot I think we have to do. Those are some really insightful points. And I agree, like that's something we, we hope to be able to contribute to as well. Now that we're partnering. Let with me know if I can help because I clearly feel very strongly about all of this. For good reason. Absolutely. I know we're uh, at time, so my last question for you, which is one I know our audience will appreciate, is you know we have an audience of millions of current and future healthcare professionals, people who go into public health, from contact tracers to physicians. Um, what advice would you give to them about meeting the challenges of not only this pandemic but, but moving forward? Well, I think Shiv that one of the reasons we were so vulnerable here in the United States is because we had divested effectively from public health over many years. We had divested at a federal level, but also at a state and local level. And I think that we're living kind of painfully in a moment where robust public health systems clearly matter. I mean, even evidence in the question that you asked, we still don't have enough contact tracers here in the United States. 
it's, you know, just another example of the, we still don't have enough, like fill in the blank, right? We're, we still don't have enough tests. We still don't have enough people to administer those tests. We don't have enough contact tracers. We don't have enough people administering, you know, vaccinations and we don't have enough people working to make vaccines, right? So we still are not doing enough. And I hope that if we are able to do enough uh, in this moment, then when we persist beyond this moment, uh, we are able to maintain at least some of that capacity because we know that this is not the last time that we'll have a zoonotic virus jump into humans, especially as we continue to live and intrude upon and continue to unfortunately exploit more and more of nature. And so I just think what can any of us do? We can all continue to try to meet this moment more urgently and more effectively, and then to ensure that when we are beyond this moment, uh, that not only do we not forget the lessons, but that we continue to live in the lessons and that we continue to recognize that we need to have public health systems that are complementary at the local, state, federal, and, and global levels, and that what we do now should help better prepare us for the inevitable next time. Some really great advice, and hopefully we, as a society, won't have short-term amnesia that, you know, just this morning I was reading again about the Fauci effect, a 20% increase in enrollments or applications to medical schools. So hopefully people, you know, there will be a lasting effect on public health and infrastructure here in the U.S. And, and abroad. So Chelsea, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. Take care. Stay safe, everybody. And with that, I'm Shivivani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. Take care. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.